Chapter Twenty Eight of the Three Just Men by Edgar Wallace. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. At Freighters. Manfred suggested an early dinner at the Lasky, where the soup was to his fastidious taste. Leon, who had eaten many crumpets for tea, he had a weakness for this indigestible article of diet, was prepared to dispense with the dinner, and Parkhart had views, being a man of steady habits. They dined at the Lasky, and Leon ordered a baked onion, and expatiated upon the two wasted years of Poincaré's life, employing a wealth of imagery and a beauty of diction worthy of a better subject. Manfred looked at his watch. "'Where are they dining?' he asked. "'I don't know yet,' said Leon. "'Our friend will be here in a few minutes. When we go out, he will tell us. You don't want to see her?' Manfred shook his head. "'No,' he said. "'I am going to be bored,' complained Poicart. "'Then you should have let me bring Elma,' said Leon promptly. "'Exactly,' Raymond nodded his sober head. "'I have the feeling that I am saving a lady from an unutterably dreary evening. "'There was a man waiting for them when they came out of the restaurant, "'a very uninteresting-looking man who had three sentences to say sotto voce as they stood near him, "'but apparently in ignorance of his presence.' I do not wish to go to Merrow, said Manford, but as we have the time, I think it would be advisable to stroll in that direction. I am curious to discover whether this is really Aubergine's little treat, or whether the idea emanated from the unadmirable Mr. Newton. And how will you go, George? asked Gonzales. By the car. If Aubergine is master of the ceremonies, we shall find his machine parked somewhere in the neighborhood. If it is Newton's idea, then Aubergine's limousine which brought them from South London, will have returned, and Newton's car will be in its place. Merrow's was one of the most fashionable of dining clubs, patronized not only by the elite of society, but having on its books the cream of the theatrical world. He was situated in one of those quiet old-world squares which are to be found in the very heart of London, enjoying for some mysterious reason immunity from the hands of the speculative property owner. The square retained the appearance it had in the days of the Georges, and though some of the fine mansions had been given over to commerce and the professions, and the lawyer and the manufacturer's agent occupied the drawing-rooms and bedrooms sacred to the bucks and beauties of other days, quite a large number of the houses remained in private occupation. There was nothing in the fascia of Merrow's to advertise its character. The club premises consisted of three of these fine old dwellings. The uninitiated might not even suspect that there was communication between the three houses, for the old doorways and doorsteps remained untouched, though only one was used. They strolled along two sides of the square before, amidst the phalanx of cars that stood wheel to wheel, their backs to the railings of the centre gardens, they saw Aubergine's car. The driver sat with his arms folded on the wheel, in earnest conversation with a pale-faced man, slightly and neatly bearded, and dressed in faultless evening dress. He was evidently a cripple. One shoulder was higher than the other, and when he moved, he walked painfully with the aid of a stick. Manfred saw the driver point up the line of cars, and the lame gentleman limped in the direction the chauffeur had indicated, and stopped to speak to another man in livery. As they came abreast of him, they saw that one of his boots had a thick sole, and the limp was explained. "'The gentleman has lost his car,' said Manfred, for now he was peering short-sightedly at the number plates. The theft of cars was a daily occurrence. 
Leon had something to say on the potentialities of that branch of crime. He owned to an encyclopedic knowledge of the current fashions and wrongdoing, and in a few brief sentences indicated the extent of these thefts. Fifty a week are shipped to India and the colonies, after their numbers are erased and another substituted. In some cases the knockers-off, as they call the thieves, drive them straight away into the packing cases which are prepared for every make of car. The ends are nailed up, and they are awaiting shipment at the docks before the owner is certain of his loss. There are almost as many stolen cars in India, South Africa, and Australia as there are honest ones. They walked slowly past the decorous portals of Marrows, and caught a glimpse through the curtain windows of soft table lamps burning, of bare-armed women and white-shirted men, and heard faintly the strains of an orchestra playing a Viennese waltz. "'I should like to see our Jane,' said Gonzales. "'She never came to you, did she?' "'She came, but I didn't see her,' said Manfred. "'From the moment she leaves the theatre she must not be left.' Leon nodded. "'I have already made that arrangement,' he said. "'Digby—' "'Digby takes up his duty at midnight,' said Manfred. "'He has been down to Aubergine's place to get the lie of the land. "'He thought it advisable that he should study the topography in daylight, and I agreed. "'He might get himself into an awkward tangle if he started exploring the canal bank in the dark hours. "'Summer or winter there is usually a mist on the water.' They reached Vrader's theatre so early that the queues at the pit door were still unadmitted, and Leon suggested that they make a circuit of this rambling house of entertainment. It stood in Shaftesbury Avenue and occupied an island site. On either side, two narrow streets flanked the building, whilst the rear formed the third side of a small square, one of which was taken up by a county council dwelling, mainly occupied by artisans. From the square, a long passageway led to Cranbourne Street, whilst, in addition to the alley which opened just at the back of the theatre, a street ran parallel to Shaftesbury Avenue from Charing Cross Road to Rupert Street. The theatre itself was one of the best in London, and although it had had a succession of failures, its luck had turned, and the new mystery play was drawing all London. "'That is the stage door,' said Leon. They had reached the square. "'And those are emergency exits,' he pointed back the way they had come." which are utilized at the end of a performance to empty the theatre. "'Why are you taking such an interest in the theatre itself?' asked Poicart. "'Because,' said Gonzales slowly, "'I am in agreement with George. We should have found Newton's car parked in Fitzreeve Gardens, not Aubergine's. And the circumstances are a little suspicious. The doors of the pit and gallery were open now, the queues were moving slowly to the entrances, and they watched the great buildings swallow up the devotees of the drama before they returned to the front of the house. Cars were beginning to arrive, at first at intervals, but as the hour of the play's beginning approached, in a ceaseless line that made a congestion and rendered the traffic police articulate and occasionally unkind. It was short of the half-hour after eight when Manfred saw Aubergine's glistening car in the block, and presently it pulled up before the entrance of the theatre. First Joan and then Monty Newton alighted and passed out of view. Gonzales thought he had never seen the girl looking quite as radiantly pretty. She had the colouring and the shape of youth, and though the more fastidious might object to her daring toilette, the most cantankerous could not cavil at the pleasing effect. "'It is a great pity,' Leon spoke in Spanish. "'A thousand pities!' "'I have the same feeling when I see a perfect block of marble 
placed in the hands of a tombstone maker to be mangled into ugliness. Manfred put out his hand and drew him back into the shadow. A cab was dropping the lame man. He got out with the aid of a linked man, paid the driver, and limped into the vestibule. It was not a remarkable coincidence. The gentleman had evidently come from Marrow's, and as all London was flocking to the drama, there was little that was odd in finding him here. They saw that he went up into the dress circle, and later, when they took their places in the stalls, Leon, glancing up, saw the pale, bearded face and noted that he occupied the end seat of the front row. "'I've met that man somewhere,' he said, irritated. "'Nothing annoys me worse than to forget, not a face, but where I have seen it.' Did Gerther but know, he had achieved the height of his ambition. He had twice passed under the keen scrutiny of the cleverest detectives in the world, and had remained unrecognized. End of chapter 28「Twenty Nine of the Three Just Men by Edgar Wallace. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Work for Gerther. Gerther was sleeping when he was called for duty, but presented himself before his director as bright and alert as though he had not spent a sleepless night, nor yet had endured the strain of a midnight train jump. Once more, my Gerther, I send you forth. Dr. Robuchon was almost gay this time to save us all from the Judas treachery of one we thought was our friend. Tonight the snake must bite, and bite hard, Gerther. And out into the dark goes the so-called trusted. And after that, my brave boy, there shall be nothing to fear. He paused for approval, and got it in a snapped agreement. Tonight we desire from you a chef d'oeuvre, the supreme employment of your great art, Gerther, the highest expression of genius. The gentleman club manner will not do. They may look for you and find you. Better it should be this time that you... Herr Doctor, will you graciously permit me to offer a humble suggestion? said Gerther eagerly. The doctor nodded his head slowly. You may speak, Gerther, he said. You are a man of intelligence. I would not presume to dictate to an artist. Let me go for an hour, perhaps two hours, and I will return to you with a manner that is unique. It is graciously permitted, her doctor. March, said the doctor graciously, waving his hand to the door. Nearly an hour and a half passed before the door opened and a gentleman came in who for even a moment even the doctor thought was a stranger. The face had an unearthly ivory pallor, the black brows, the faint shadows beneath the eyes that suggested a recent illness, the close-cropped black beard in which Gray showed, these might not have deceived him. But the man was obviously the victim of some appalling accident in the past. One shoulder was hunched, the hand that held the stick was distorted out of shape, and as he moved, the clump of his club foot advertised his lameness. "'Sir, you desire to see me?' began the doctor, and then stared open-mouthed. "'It is not!' Gerther smiled. "'Her doctor, are you condescendingly pleased?' "'Colossal!' murmured Aubergeon, gazing in amazement. Of all accomplishments, this is supreme. Gerther, you are an artist. Some day we shall buy a theatre for you in Unter den Linden, and you shall thrill large audiences. Herr Doctor, this is my own idea. This I have planned for many months. The boots I made myself, even the coat I altered. He patted his deformed shoulder proudly. An eyeglass? I have it, 
said Gerther promptly. The cravat, is it not too proper? Gerther fingered his tie. For the grand habit I respectfully claim that the proper tie is desirable, if you will graciously permit. The hair doctor nodded. You shall go with God, Gerther, he said piously, took a golden cigarette case from his pocket and handed it to the man. Sit down, my dear friend. He rose and pointed to the chair he had vacated. In my own chair, Gerther, nothing is too good for you. Now, here is the arrangement. Step by step he unfolded the timetable, for chronology was almost as great a passion with this strange and wicked man as it was with Aunt Alma. So confident was Gerther of his disguise that he had gone in the open to speak to Aubergine's chauffeur, and out of the tail of his eye he had seen Manfred and Gonzalo's approaching. It was a supreme test and was passed with credit to himself. He did not dine at Marrow's. Gerther never ate or drank when he was wearing a disguise, knowing just how fatal that occupation could be. Instead, he had called a taxi and had killed time by being driven slowly round and round the outer circle of Regent's Park. Gerther was doing a great deal of thinking in these days, and at the cost of much physical discomfort had curtailed his pernicious practices that his head might be clear all the time. For if he were to live, that clear head of his was necessary. The prisoner in the cellar occupied his thoughts. She had an importance for two reasons. She was a friend of the men whom he hated with a cold and deadly malignity beyond description. She represented wealth untold, and the hair doctor had even gone to the length of planning a marriage with her. She was not to be killed, not to be hurt. She was so important that the old man would take the risks attendant upon a marriage. There must be an excellent reason for that, because Dr. Aubergine had not a very delicate mind. He seemed to remember that, by the English law, a wife could not give evidence against her husband. He was not sure, but he had a dim notion that Pfeiffer had told him this. Pfeiffer was an educated man and had taken high honors at the gymnasium. Gerther was not well read. His education had been of a scrappy character, and once upon a time he had been refused a leading part because of his provincial accent. That fault he had corrected in prison, under the tuition of a professor who was serving a life sentence for killing two women. But by the time Gerther had been released, he was a marked man, and the stage was a career lost to him forever. Aubergine possessed advantages which were not his. He was the master. Gerther was the servant. Aubergine could determine events by reason of his vast authority and the strings which he pulled in every part of the world. Even Gerther had accepted this position of blind, obedient servant, but now his angle had shifted, even as Aubergine's had moved in relation to Montague Newton. Perhaps because of this. The doctor, in curtailing one confidence, was enlarging another, and in the enlargement his prestige suffered. Gerther was now the confidant, therefore the equal, and logically, the equal can always become the superior. He had dreamed dreams of a life of ease, a gratification of his sense of luxury without the sobering thought that somewhere round the corner was waiting a man ready to tap him on the shoulder, a white palace in a flowery land with blue swimming pools and supple girls who called him master. Gerther began to see the light. Until he had taken his seat in the theatre, he had not so much as glimpsed the man and the woman in the end box. Joan was happy, happier than she remembered having been. Perhaps it was the reaction from her voluntary imprisonment. 
Certainly it was Monty's reluctant agreement to a change of plans which so exalted her. Monty had dropped the thin pretense of an accommodation marriage, and once he was persuaded to this, the last hindrance to enjoyment was dissipated. Let Aubergeon take the girl if he wanted her, take two such heavy responsibility as followed. Monty Newton would get all he wanted without the risk. Having arrived at this decision, he had ordered another bottle of champagne to seal the bargain, and they left Merrill's club a much happier couple than they had been when they entered. As soon as we've carved up this money, we'll get away out of England, he told her as they were driving to the theatre. What about Buenos Aires for the winter, old girl? She did not know where Buenos Aires was, but she gurgled her delight at the suggestion, and Monty expatiated upon the joys of the South American summer, the beauties of B.A., its gaieties and amusements. I don't suppose there'll be any kick coming, he said, but it wouldn't be a bad scheme if we took a trip round the world and came back in about eighteen months' time to settle down in London. My hectic past would have been forgotten by then. Why, I might even get into Parliament. How wonderful, she breathed, and then, what is this play about, Monty? It's a bit of a thrill, the very play for you, a detective story that will make your hair stand on end. She had all the gamin's morbid interest in murder and crime, and she settled down in the box with a pleasant feeling of anticipation and watched the development of the first act. The scene was laid in a club, a low-down resort where the least desirable members of society met, and she drank in every word, because she knew the life, had seen that type of expensively dressed woman who swaggered on to the stage and was addressed familiarly by the club proprietor. She knew that steady-eyed detective when he made his embarrassing appearance. The woman was herself. She even knew the cadaverous wanderer who approached stealthily at the door, a human wolf that fled at the sight of the police officer. The three who sat in the front row of the stalls, how Leon Gonzalez secured these tickets was one of the minor mysteries of the day, saw her, and one at least felt his heart ache. Monty beamed his geniality. He had taken sufficient wine to give him a rosy view of the world, and he was even mildly interested in the play, though his chief pleasure was in the girl's enchantment. He ordered ices for her after the first interval. "'You're getting quite a theatre fan, Kitty,' he said. "'I must take you to some other shows. I had no idea you liked this sort of thing.' She drew a long breath and smiled at him. "'I like anything when I'm with you,' she said, and they held hands foolishly, till the house lights dimmed and the curtain rose upon a lawyer's office. The lawyer was of the underworld, a man everlastingly on the verge of being struck off the rolls. He had betrayed a client with whom he had had dealings, and the man had gone to prison for a long term, but had escaped. Now the news had come that he had left Australia and was in London, waiting his opportunity to destroy the man whose treachery was responsible for his capture. Here was a note to which the heart of the girl responded. Even Monty found himself leaning forward as the old familiar cant terms of his trade came across the footlights. "'It is quite all right,' he said at the second interval, only, he hesitated, "'isn't it a bit too near the real thing? After all, one doesn't come to the theatre to see—' He stopped, realizing that conditions and situations familiar to him were novel enough to a fashionable audience which was learning for the first time— that a busy was a detective, and that a police informer went by the title of Nose. The light's up, he glanced round the house, and suddenly he started and caught her arm. Don't look for a moment, he said, averting his eyes. 
Then take a glance at the front row. Do you see anybody you know? Presently she looked. Yes, that is the fellow you hate so much, isn't it? Gonzales? They're all there, the three of them, said Monty. I wonder, he was troubled at the thought, I wonder if they're looking for you. For me? They've nothing on me, Monty. He was silent. I'm glad you're not going back to that place tonight. They'll trail you, sure. Sure! He thought later that it was probably a coincidence that they were there at all. They seemed to show no interest in the box, but were chattering and talking and laughing to one another. Not once did their eyes come up to his level, and after a while he gained in confidence, though he was glad enough when the play was resumed. There were two scenes in the act. The first was the police station, the second the lawyer's room. The man was drunk, and the detective had come to warn him that the ringer was after him. And then suddenly the lights on the stage were extinguished and the whole house was in the dark. It was part of the plot. In this darkness and in the very presence of the police, the threatened man was to be murdered. They listened in tense silence, the girl craning her head forward, trying to pierce the dark, listening to the lines of intense dialogue that were coming from the blackness of the stage. Somebody was in the room, a woman, and they had found her. She slipped from the stage detective's grasp and vanished, and when the lights went up, she was gone. "'What has happened, Monty?' she whispered. He did not answer. "'Do you think—' She looked round at him. His head was resting on the plush-covered ledge of the box. His face, turned towards her, was gray, the eyes were closed, and his teeth showed in a hideous grin. She screamed. Monty! Monty! She shook him. Again her scream rang through the house. At first the audience thought that it was a woman driven hysterical by the tenseness of the stage situation, and then one or two people rose from their stalls and looked up. Monty, speak to me! He's dead! He's dead! Three seats in the front row had emptied. The screams of the hysterical girl made it impossible for the scene to proceed, and the curtain came down quickly. The house was seething with excitement. Every face was turned towards the box where she knelt by the side of the dead man, clasping him in her arms, and the shrill agony in her voice was unnerving. The door of the box swung open, and Manfred dashed in. One glance he gave at Monty Newton, and he needed no other. "'Get the girl out,' he said curtly. Leon tried to draw her from the box, but she was a shrieking fury. "'You did it! You did it! Let me go to him!' Leon lifted her from her feet, and clawing wildly at his face she was carried from the box. The manager was running along the passage, and Leon sent him on with a jerk of his head. And then a woman in evening dress came from somewhere. May I take her, she said, and the exhausted girl collapsed into her arms. Gonzales flew back to the box. The man was lying on the floor, and the manager, standing at the edge of the box, was addressing the audience. The gentleman has fainted, and I'm afraid his friend has become a little hysterical. I must apologize to you, ladies and gentlemen, for this interruption. If you will allow us a minute to clear the box, the play will be resumed. If there is a doctor in the house, I should be glad if he would come. There were two doctors within reach, and in the passage, which was now guarded by a commissionaire, a hasty examination was made. They examined the punctured wound at the back of the neck and then looked at one another. This is the snake, said one. The house mustn't know, said Manfred. He's dead, of course. The doctor nodded. 
Out in the passage was a big emergency exit door, and this the manager pushed open, and running out into the street, found a cab, into which all that was mortal of Monty Newton was lifted. Whilst this was being done, Poicart returned. His car has just driven off, he said. I saw the number plate as it turned into Lyle Street. How long ago? asked Gonzalez quickly. At this very moment. Leon pinched his lip thoughtfully. Why didn't he wait, I wonder? He went back through the emergency door, which was being closed, and passed up the passage towards the entrance. The box was on the dress circle level, and the end of a short passage brought him into the circle itself. And then the thought of the lame man occurred to him, and his eyes sought the first seat in the front row, which was also the seat nearest to the boxes. The man had gone. As he made this discovery, George emerged from the passage. Gerther, said Leon, what a fool I am! But how clever! Gerther, said Manfred in amazement. Do you mean the man with the club foot? Leon nodded. He was not alone, of course, said Gonzales. There must have been two or three of the gang here, men and women. Aubergine works these schemes out with the care and thoroughness of a general. I wonder where the management have taken the girl. He found the manager discussing the tragedy with two other men, one of whom was obviously associated with the production, and he signaled him aside. The lady? I suppose she's gone home. She's left the theater. Which way did she go? asked Gonzales in a sudden panic. The manager called a linkman who had seen a middle-aged woman come out of the theater with a weeping girl, and they had gone down the side street towards the little square at the back of the playhouse. She may have taken her home to Chester Square, said Manfred. His voice belied the assumption of confidence. Leon had not brought his own machine, and they drove to Chester Square in a taxi. Fred, the footman, had neither heard nor seen the girl, and nearly fainted when he learned of the tragic ending to his master's career. Oh, my God, he groaned, and he only left here this afternoon. Dead, you say? Gonzales nodded. Not, not the snake, faltered the man. What do you know about the snake? demanded Manfred sternly. Nothing except, well, the snake made him nervous, I know. He told me today that he hoped he'd get through the week without a snake bite. He was questioned closely, but although it was clear that he knew something of his master's illicit transactions and that he was connected in business with Oberzon, the footman had no connection with the doctor's gang. He drew a large wage and percentage of profits from the gaming side of the business and confessed that it was part of his duties to prepare stacks of cards and pass them to his master under cover of bringing in the drinks. But of anything more sinister he knew nothing. The woman, of course, was a confederate who had been planted to take charge of the girl the moment the snake struck. I was in such a state of mind, confessed Leon, that I do not even remember what she looked like. I am a fool, a double distilled idiot. I think I must be getting old. There's only one thing for us to do, and that is to get back to Curzon Street. Something may have turned up. Did you leave anybody in the house? Leon nodded. Yes, I left one of our men to take any phone messages that came through. They paid off the taxi before the house. Leon sprinted to the garage to get the car. The man who opened the door to them was he who had been tied up by the peddler at Heavy Tree Farm, and his first words came as a shock to Manfred. Digby's here, sir. Digby? said the other in surprise. I thought he was on duty. He's been here since just after you left, sir. If I'd known where you had gone, I'd have sent him to you. 
Digby came out of the waiting room at that moment, ready to apologize. I had to see you, sir, and I'm sorry I'm away from my post. You may not be missing much, said Manfred unsmilingly. Come upstairs and tell me all about it. Digby's story was a strange one. He had gone down that afternoon to the canal bank to make a reconnaissance of ground which was new to him. I'm glad I did, too, because the walls have got broken glass on top. I went up into the old Kent Road and bought a garden hoe and prized the mortar loose so that, if I wanted, I could get over. And then I climbed round the water gate and had a look at that barge of his. There was nobody about, though I think they spotted me afterwards. It was a fairly big barge, and of course in a terrible state, but the hold is full of cargo. You know that, sir? You mean there is something in the barge? Digby nodded. Yes, it has a load of some kind. The after part where the bargee's sleeping quarters are is full of rats and water, but the fore part of the vessel is watertight and it holds something heavy, too. That is why the barge is down by its head in the mud. I was in the Thames police and I know a lot about rivercraft. Is that what you came to tell me? No, sir, it was something queerer than that. After I'd given the barge a look over and tried to pull up some of the boards, which I didn't manage to do, I went along and had a look at the factory. It's not so easy to get in, because the entrance faces the house. But to get to it, you have to go half round the building, and that gives you a certain amount of cover. There was nothing I could see in the factory itself. It was in a terrible mess, full of old iron and burnt-out boxes. I was coming round the back of the building, he went on impressively, when I smelt a peculiar scent. A perfume? Yes, sir. It was perfume, but stronger. More like incense. I thought at first it might be an old bale of stuff that had been thrown out, or else I was deceiving myself. I began poking about in the rubbish heaps, but they didn't smell of scent. Then I went back into the building again, but there was no smell at all. It was very strong when I returned to the back of the factory, and then I saw a little waft of smoke come out of a ventilator close to the ground. My first idea was that the place was on fire, but when I knelt down, it was the scent. Joss sticks, said Poircart quickly. That's what it was, said the detective. Like incense, yet not like it. I knelt down and listened at the grating, and I'd swear that I heard voices. They were very faint. Men's? No women's. Could you see anything? No, sir, it was a blind ventilator. There was probably a shaft there. In fact, I'm sure there was, because I pushed a stone through one of the holes and heard it drop some distance down. There may be an underground room there, said Poicard, and somebody's burnt jaw sticks to sweeten the atmosphere. Under the factory? It's not in the plans of the building. I've had them from the surveyor's office and examined them, said George, although surveyor's plans aren't infallible. A man like Aubergine would not hesitate to break so unimportant a thing as a building law. Leon came in at that moment, heard the story, and was in complete agreement with Poicard's theory. I wondered at the time we saw the plans whether we ought to accept that as conclusive, he said. The store was built at the end of 1914, when architects and builders took great liberties and pleaded the exigencies of the war. Digby went on with his story. I was going back to the barge to get past the water gate, but I saw the old man coming down the steps of the house. So I climbed the wall, and very glad I was that I'd shifted that broken glass, or I should never have got over. Manfred pulled his watch from his pocket with a frown. They had lost nearly an hour of precious time with their inquiries in Chester Square. 
I hope we're not too late, he said ominously. Now, Leon... But Leon had gone down the stairs in three strides. End of chapter 29《30 30 of the Three Just Men by Edgar Wallace. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Joan a Prisoner. Dazed with grief, not knowing, not seeing, not caring, not daring to think, Joan suffered herself to be led quickly into the obscurity of the side street, and did not even realize that Aubergine's big limousine had drawn up by the sidewalk. Get in, said the woman harshly. Joan was pushed through the door and guided to a seat by somebody who was already in the machine. She collapsed in a corner moaning as the door slammed and the car began to move. Where are we going? Let me get back to him. The gracious lady will please restrain her grief, said a hateful voice, and she swung round and stared unseeingly to the place whence the voice had come. The curtains of the car had been drawn. The interior was as black as pitch. You... You beast, she gasped. It's you, is it? Gerther, you murdering beast. She struck at him feebly, but he caught her wrist. The gracious lady will most kindly restrain her grief, he said suavely. The Herr Newton is not dead. It was a little trick in order to baffle certain interferers. You're lying, you're lying, she screamed, struggling to escape from those hands of steel. He's dead. You know he's dead, and you killed him. You snake man! The gracious lady must believe me, said Gerther earnestly. They were passing through a public part of the town, and at any moment a policeman might hear her shrieks. If Herr Newton had not pretended to be hurt, he would have been arrested. He follows in the next car. You're trying to quiet me, she said, but I won't be quiet. And then a hand came over her mouth and pressed her head back against the cushions. She struggled desperately but two fingers slid up her face and compressed her nostrils. She was being suffocated. She struggled to free herself from the tentacle hold of him and then slipped into unconsciousness. Gerther felt the straining figure go limp and removed his hands. She did not feel the prick of the needle on her wrist, though the drugging was clumsily performed in the darkness and in a car that was swaying from side to side. He felt her pulse. His long fingers pressed her throat and felt the throb of the carotid artery, propping her so that she could not fall, her Gerther sank back luxuriously into a corner of the limousine and lit a cigar. The journey was soon over. In a very short time they were bumping down Hangman's Lane and turned so abruptly into the factory grounds that one of the mudguards buckled to the impact of the gatepost. It must have been two hours after the departure of her companion when Mirabelle, lying on her bed, half-dozing, was wakened by her book slipping to the floor and sat up quickly to meet the apprising stare of the man whom, of all men in the world, she disliked most cordially. Dr. Aubergine had come noiselessly into the room, and under his arm was a pile of books. "'I have brought these for you,' he said in his booming voice, and stacked them neatly on the table. She did not answer. "'Novels of a frivolous kind, such as you will enjoy,' he said, unconscious of offence. "'I desired the seller of the books to pick them for me.' Fiction stories of adventure and of amorous exchanges, these will occupy your mind, though to me they would be the merest rubbish and nonsense. She stood silently, her hands clasped behind her, watching him. He was neater than usual, and resumed the frock coat he wore the day she had first met him. How long ago that seemed! 
His collar was stiffly white, and if his cravat was more gorgeous than is usually seen in a man correctly arrayed, it had the complimentary value of being new. He held in his hand a small bouquet of flowers tightly packed, their stems enclosed in silver foil, a white paper frill supplying an additional expression of gentility. These are for you, he jerked out his hand towards her. Mirabel looked at the flowers, but did not take them. He seemed in no way disconcerted, either by her silence or by the antagonism which her attitude implied, but laying the flowers on top of the books, he clasped his hands before him and addressed her. He was nervous for some reason. The skin of his forehead was furrowing and smoothing with grotesque rapidity. She watched the contortions fascinated. To every man, he began, there comes a moment of domestic allurement. Even to the scientific mind, absorbed in its colossal problems, there is this desire for family life and for the haven of rest which is called marriage. He paused as though he expected her to offer some comment upon his platitude. Man alone, he went on, when she did not speak, has established an artificial and unnatural convention that, at a certain age, a man should marry a woman of that same age. Yet it has been proved by history that happy marriages are often between a man who is in the eyes of the world old and a lady who is youthful. She was gazing at him in dismay. Was he proposing to her? The idea was incredible, almost revolting. He must have read in her face the thoughts that were uppermost in her mind, the loathing, the sense of repulsion which filled her, and Eddie went on, unabashed. I am a man of great riches. You are a girl of considerable poverty. But because I saw you one day in your poor house looking, gracious lady, like a lily growing amidst foul weeds, my heart went out to you, and for this reason I brought you to London, spending many thousands of pounds in order to give myself the pleasure of your company. I don't think you need to go any further, Dr. Aubergine, she said quietly, if you are proposing marriage, as I think you are. He nodded emphatically. Such is my honorable intention, he said. I would never marry you in any circumstances, she said, not even if I had met you under the happiest conditions. The question of your age, she nearly added, and of your appearance, but her natural kindness prevented that cruel thrust, though it would not have hurt him in the slightest degree, has nothing whatever to do with my decision. I do not even like you, and have never liked you, Mr. Aubergine. Doctor, he corrected, and in spite of her woeful plight she could have laughed at this insistence upon the ceremonial title. Young miss, I cannot woo you in the way of my dear and sainted brother, who was all for ladies and had a beautiful manner. She was amazed to hear that he had a brother at all, and it was almost a relief to know that he was dead. Martyred at the hands of wicked and cunning murderers, slain in his prime by the assassin's pistol, his voice trembled and broke. For that sainted life I will some day take vengeance. It was not holy curiosity that impelled her to ask who killed him. Leon Gonzalez. The words in his lips became the grating of a file. Killed. Murdered. And even his beautiful picture destroyed in that terrible fire. Had he saved that, my heart would have been soft towards him. He checked himself, evidently realizing that he was getting away from the object of his call. Think over this matter, young lady. Read the romantic books and the amorous books, and then perhaps you will not think it is so terrible a fate to drift at moonlight through the canals of Venice, 
with the moon above and the gondoliers. He wagged his head sentimentally. There is no book which will change my view, doctor, she said. I cannot understand why you propose such an extraordinary course, but I would rather die than marry you. His cold eyes filled her with a quick terror. There are worse things than death, which is but sleep. Many worse things, young miss. Tomorrow I shall come for you, and we will go into the country where you will say yes and no according to my desire. I have many, what is the word, certificates of marriage, for I am too clever a man to leave myself without alternatives. This was true. He had residential qualifications in at least four counties, and at each he had given legal notice of his intended marriage. Not tomorrow or any other day. Nothing would induce me. His eyebrows went almost to the top of his head. So, he said, with such significance that her blood ran cold, there are worse men than the hair doctor. He raised a long finger warningly. Terrible men with terrible minds. You have met Gerther? She did not answer this. Yes, yes, you danced with him. A nice man, is he not, to ladies? Yet this same Gerther, I will tell you something. He seated himself on a corner of the table and began talking, until she covered her ears with her hands and hid her white face from him. They would have killed him for that, he said, when her hands came down, but Gerther was too clever, and the poor German peasants too stupid. You shall remember that, shall you not? He did not wait for her answer. With a stiff bow he strutted out of the room and up the stairs. There came the thud of the trap falling and the inevitable rumble of the concrete barrel. He had some work to do, heavy work for a man who found himself panting when he climbed stairs, and though four of his best and most desperate men were waiting in his parlor, drinking his whiskey and filling the little room with their rank cigar smoke, he preferred to tackle this task which he had already begun as soon as night fell, without their assistance or knowledge. On the edge of the deep hole in his grounds, where the wild convolvulus grew amidst the rusty corners of discarded tins and oil barrels, was a patch of earth that yielded easily to the spade. When the factory had been built, the depression had been bigger, but the builders had filled in half the hole with the light soil that they had dug out of the factory's foundations. He took a spade, which he had left in the factory, and skirting the saucer-shaped depression, he reached a spot where a long trench had already been dug taking off his fine coat and waistcoat, unfastening cravat and collar and carefully depositing them upon the folded coat, he continued his work, stopping now and again to wipe his streaming brow. He had to labor in the dark, but this was no disadvantage. He could feel the edges of the pit. In an hour the top of the trench was level with his chin, and stooping to clear the bottom of loose soil, he climbed up with greater difficulty than he had anticipated and it was only after the third attempt that he managed to reach the top, out of breath and short of temper. He dressed again, and with his electric torch surveyed the pit he had made and grunted his satisfaction. He was keenly sensitive to certain atmospheres, and needed no information about the change which had come over his subordinates. In their last consultation, Gerther had been less obsequious, had even smoked in his presence without permission, absent-mindedly perhaps, but the offense was there. And Dr. Aubergeon, on the point of smacking his face for his insolence, heard a warning voice within himself which had made his hand drop back at his side. Or was it the look he saw on Gerther's face? The man was beyond the point where he could discipline him in the old Junker way. 
for although Dr. Aubergine contemned all things Teutonic, he had a sneaking reverence for the military caste of that nation. He left the spade sticking in a heap of turned earth. He would need that again, and shortly, unless Gerther failed. Somehow he did not anticipate a failure in this instance. Mr. Monty Newton had not yet grown suspicious, would not be on his guard. His easy acceptance of the theatre ticket showed his mind in this respect. The four men in his room rose respectfully as he came in. The air was blue with smoke, and Lou Cuccini offered a rough apology. He had been released that morning from detention, for Meadows had found it difficult to frame a charge which did not expose the full activities of the police and the part they were playing in relation to Mirabel Lester. Evidently, Cuccini had been reproaching, in his own peculiar way and in his own unprincipled language, the cowardice of his three companions, for the atmosphere seemed tense when the doctor returned. Yet, as was subsequently proved, the appearance of discord was deceptive, but indeed had been staged for their host's benefit. "'I've just been telling these birds,' began Cuccini. "'Oh, shut up, Lou!' growled one of his friends. "'If that crazy man hadn't been shouting your name, we should not have gone back. He'd have wakened the dead. And our orders were to retire at the first serious sign of an alarm. That's right, doctor, isn't it?' "'Sure it's right,' said the doctor blandly. "'Never be caught. That is a good motto. Cuccini was caught.' "'And I give a year of my life to meet that Dago again,' said Cuccini between his teeth. "'He was delightfully inconsistent, for he came into the category, having been born in Milan, "'and had had his early education in the Italian quarter of Hartford, Connecticut. "'He'd have tortured me, too. "'He was going to put lighted wax matches between my fingers. "'And then you spilled it,' accused one of the three hotly. "'You talk about us bolting.' "'Silence!' roared the doctor. "'This is unseemly. I have forgiven everything. That shall be enough for you all. I will hear no other word. Where is Gerther? Guccini asked the question. He has gone away. Tonight he leaves for America. He may return, who knows, but that is the intention. Snaking? asked somebody, and there was a little titter of laughter. Say, doctor, how do you work that stunt? Guccini leaned forward, his cigar between his fingers greatly intrigued. I saw no snakes down at Rath Hall, and yet he was bitten, just as that Yankee was bitten, Washington. He will die, said the doctor complacently. He was absurdly jealous for the efficacy of his method. He was alive yesterday, anyway. We shadowed him to the station. Then he was not bitten. No, that is impossible. When the snake bites, Aubergine raised his palms and gazed piously at the ceiling. After that there is nothing. No, no, my friend, you are mistaken. I tell you I'm not making any mistakes, said the other doggedly. I was in the room, I tell you, soon after they brought him in, and I heard one of the busy say that his face was all wet. So, said Aubergine dully, that is very bad. But how do you do it, doctor? Do you shoot or something? Let us talk about eventual wealth and happiness, said the doctor. Tonight is a night of great joy for me. I will sing you a song. Then, to the amazement of the men and to their great unhappiness, he sang, in a thin, reedy old voice, the story of a young peasant who had been thwarted in love and had thrown himself from a cliff into a seething waterfall. It was a lengthy song, intensely sentimental, and his voice held few of the qualities of music. The gang had never been set a more difficult job than to keep straight faces until he had finished. "'Gee, you're some artist, doctor,' 
said the psychophantic Cuccini, and managed to get a simulation of envy into his voice. In my student days I was a great singer, said the doctor modestly. Over the mantelpiece was a big old clock, with a face so faded that only a portion of the letters remained. Its noisy ticking had usually a sedative effect on the doctor, but its main purpose and value was its accuracy, and every day it was corrected by a message from Greenwich, and as Aubergine's success as an organizer depended upon exact timing, it was one of his most valuable assets. He glanced up at the clock now, and that gave Cuccini his excuse. "'We'll be getting along, doctor,' he said. "'You don't want anything tonight? I'd like to get a cut at that Gonzales man. You won't leave me out if there's anything doing?' Aubergine rose and went out of the room without another word for he knew that the rising of Guccini was a signal that not only was the business of the day finished, but also that the gang needed its pay. Every gang leader attended upon Mr. Aubergine once a week with his payroll, and it was usually the custom of the hair doctor to bring his cash box into the room and extract sufficient to liquidate his indebtedness to the leader. It was a big box, and on payday, as this was, filled to the top with banknotes and treasury bills. He brought it back now, put it on the table, consulted the little slip that Cuccini offered to him, and taking out a pad of notes, fastened about by a rubber band, he wetted his finger and thumb. "'You needn't count them,' said Cuccini. "'We'll take the lot.' The doctor turned to see that Cuccini was carelessly holding a gun in his hand. "'The fact is, doctor,' said Cuccini coolly, "'we've seen the red light, and if we don't skip now while well, the skipping's good, there's going to be no place we can stay comfortable in this little island.' and I guess we'll follow Gerther. One glance the doctor gave at the pistol, and then he resumed his counting, as though nothing had happened. Twenty, thirty, forty, fifty. Now quit that, said Cuccini roughly. I tell you, you needn't count. My friend, I prefer to know what I'm going to lose. It is a pardonable piece of curiosity. He raised his hand to the wall, where a length of cord hung, and pulled at it gently, without taking his eyes from the banknotes. "'What are you doing? Put up your hands!' hissed Guccini. "'Shoot, I beg!' Aubergine threw a pad of notes on the table. "'There is your pay!' He slammed down the lid of the box. "'Now you shall go, if you can go. Do you hear them?' He raised his hand, and to the strained ears of the men came a gentle rustling sound from the passage outside, as though somebody were dragging a piece of parchment along the floor. Do you hear? You shall go if you can, said the doctor again, with amazing calmness. The snakes breathed Guccini, going white, and the hand that held the pistol shook. Shoot them, my friends, sneered Aubergine. If you see them, shoot them. But you will not see them, my brave man. They will be where? No eyes shall see them come or go. They may lie behind a picture. They may wait until the door is opened, and then... Guccini's mouth was dry. "'Call him off, doctor,' he said tremulously. "'Your gun, on the table.' Still the rustling sound was audible. Guccini hesitated for a second, then obeyed and took up the notes. The other three men were huddled together by the fireplace, a picture of fear. "'Don't open the door, doc,' said Guccini, but Oberzon had already gripped the handle and turned it. They heard another door open and the click of the passage light as it had come on, and then he returned. If you go now, I shall not wish to see you again. Am I not a man whom all secrets are known? You are well aware. 
Puccini looked from the doctor to the door. Want us to go? he asked, troubled. Aubergine shrugged. As you wish. It was my desire that you should stay with me tonight. There is big work and big money for all of you. The men were looking at one another uneasily. How long do you want us to stay? asked Cuccini. Tonight only, if you would not prefer. Tonight would come the crisis. Aubergine had realized this since the day dawned for him. We'll stay. Where do we sleep? For answer, Aubergine beckoned them from the room and they followed him into the laboratory. In the wall that faced them was a heavy iron door that opened into a concrete storehouse, where he kept various odds and ends of equipment, oil and spirit for his cars, and the little gas engine that worked a small dynamo in the laboratory and gave him, if necessary, a lighting plant independent of outside current. There were three long windows, heavily barred and placed just under the ceiling. Looks like the condemned cell to me, grumbled Cuccini suspiciously. Are the bolts on the inside of a condemned cell? asked Aubergine. Does the good warden give you the key as I give you? Cuccini took the key. All right, he said ungraciously. There are plenty of blankets here, boys. I guess you want us where the police won't look, eh? That is my intention, replied the doctor. Dr. Aubergine closed the door on them and re-entered his study, his big mouth twitching with amusement. He pulled the cord again and closed the ventilator he had opened. It was only a few days before that he had discovered that there were dried leaves in the ventilator shaft, and that the opening of the inlet made them rustle, disturbingly for a man who was engaged in a profound study of the lesser known, and therefore the more highly cultured philosophers. End of chapter 30Chapter 31 of The Three Just Men by Edgar Wallace. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. The Things in the Box. He heard the soft purr of engines, and looking through the hall window, saw the dim lights of the car approaching the house, and turned out the hall lamp. There he waited in the darkness till the door of the limousine opened, and Gerther jumped out. I respectfully report that it is done, Herr Doctor, he said. Aubergeon nodded. The woman of Newton, where is she? She is inside. Is it your wish that I should bring her? She was very troublesome, Herr Doctor, and I had to use the needle. Bring her in. You! he barked at the chauffeur. Help our friend. Together they lifted the unconscious girl, but carried her no further than the steps. At this point Aubergeon decided that she must return to the prison. First they sent the chauffeur away. The car was garaged at New Cross. It was one of Aubergeon's three London depots, where the man also lived. After he had gone, they carried Joan between them to the factory, taking what to Gerther seemed an unnecessarily circuitous route. If it was unnecessary, it was at least expedient, for the nearest way to the factory led past the yawning hole that the doctor had dug with such labor. There was no mistaking Aubergeon's arrival this time. The trap went up with a thud, and Mirabel listened with a quick beating heart to the sound of feet coming down the stone stairs. There were two people, and they were walking heavily. Somehow she knew before she saw their burden that it was Joan. She was in evening dress, her face as white as chalk and her eyes closed. The girl thought she was dead when she saw them lay her on the bed. "'You have given her too much, Gerther,' said Aubergeon. Gerther? She had not recognized him. It was almost impossible to believe that this was the dapper young man who had danced with her at the arts ball. 
I had to guess in the dark, Herr Doctor, said Gerther. They were talking in German, and Mirabel's acquaintance with that language was very slight. She saw Gerther produce a small flat case from his pocket, take out a little file, and shake into the palm of his hand a small brown capsule. This he dissolved in a tiny tube which, with the water he used, was also extracted from the case. Half filling a minute syringe, he sent the needle into Joan's arm. A pause, and then, Soon she will wake, with your kind permission, Herr Doctor, said Gerther. Mirabel was not looking at him, but she knew that his hot eyes were fixed on her, that all the time except the second he was operating he was looking at her, and now she knew that this was the man to be feared. A cold hand seemed to grip at her heart. That will do, Gerther. Oberzon's voice was sharp. He too had interpreted the stare. You need not wait. Gerther obediently stalked from the room, and the doctor followed. Almost before the trap had fastened down, she was by the girl's side, with a basin of water and a wet towel. The second the water touched her face, Joan opened her eyes and gazed wildly up at the vaulted ceiling. Then, rolling over from the bed to her knees, she struggled to her feet, swayed and would have fallen, had not Mirabel steadied her. "'They've got him! They've got my boy! Killed him like a dog!' "'What, Mr. Mr. Newton?' gasped Mirabel, horrified. "'Killed him! Monty! Monty!' and then she began to scream and run up and down the room like a thing demented. Mirabel, sick at heart, almost physically sick at the sight, caught her and tried to calm her, but she was distracted, half mad. The drug and its antidote seemed to have combined to take away the last vestige of restraint. It was not until she fell, exhausted, that Mirabel was able to drag her again to the bed and lay her upon it. Montague Newton was dead. Who had killed him? Who were the they? Then she thought of Gerther in his strange attire, white dress front crumpled, even his beard disarranged in the struggle he had had with the overwrought woman. In sheer desperation she ran up the steps and tried the trap, but it was fast. She must get away from here, must get away at once. Joan was moaning pitiably, and the girl sat by her side striving to calm her. She seemed to have passed into a state of semi-consciousness, Except for her sobs, she made no sound and uttered no intelligible word. Half an hour passed, the longest and most dreadful half-hour in Mirabelle Lester's life. And then she heard a sound. It had penetrated even to the brain of this half-mad girl, for she opened her eyes wide and, gripping Mirabelle, drew herself up. "'He's coming,' she said, white to the lips. "'Coming! The killer is coming!' "'For God's sake, don't talk like that!' said Mirabel, beside herself with fear. There it was, in the outer room, a stealthy shuffle of feet. She stared at the closed door, and the strain of the suspense almost made her faint. And then she saw the steel door move, slowly, and first a hand came through, the edge of a face. Gerther was leering at her. His beard was gone, and his wig. He was collarless and had over his white shirt the stained jacket that was his everyday wear. I want you. He was talking to Mirabel. Her tongue clave to the roof of her mouth, but she did not speak. My pretty little lady, he began, and then with a shriek, Joan leapt at him. Murderer! Murderer! Beast! she cried, striking wildly at his face. With a curse, he tried to throw her off, but she was clinging to him, a bestial lunatic thing, hardly human. 
He flung her aside at last, and then he put up his hand to guard his face as she leapt at him again. This time she went under his arm and was through the door in a flash. He heard the swift patter of her feet on the stairs and turned in pursuit. The trap was open. He stumbled and tripped in the dark across the floor of the gaunt factory. Just as she reached the open, he grabbed at her and missed. Like a deer she sped, but he was fleeter-footed behind her, and suddenly his hand closed about her throat. "'You had better go out, my friend,' he said, and tightened his grip. As she twisted to avoid him, he put out his foot. There was a grating snap. Something gripped his legs, and the excruciating pain of it was agonizing. He loosened his hold of her throat, but held her arm tightly. With all his strength he threw her against the wall and she fell in a heap. Then, leaning down, he forced apart the cruel, jagged teeth of the man-trap onto which he had put his foot and drew his leg clear. He was bleeding. His trouser leg was torn to ribbons. He stopped only long enough to drag the girl to her feet, and throwing her across his shoulder as though she were a sack, he went back into the factory, down the stairs, and threw her onto the bed with such violence that the spring supports broke. It had a strange effect upon the dazed woman, but this he did not see, for he had turned to Mirabel. "'My little lady, I want you,' he breathed. Blood was trickling down from his wounded calf, but he did not feel the pain any more, felt nothing, save the desire to hurt those who hunted him, wanted nothing but the materialization of crude and horrid dreams. She stood, frozen, paralyzed, incapable of movement. And then his hand came under her chin and he lifted her face, and she saw the bright, hungry eyes devouring her, saw the thin lips come closer and closer, could not move, had lost all sentient impressions, and could only stare into the eyes of this man-snake, hypnotized by the horror of the moment. And then a raging fury descended upon him. Narrow fingers tore at his face, almost blinding him. He turned with a howl of rage, but the white-faced Joan had flown to the furnace and taken up a short iron bar that had been used to rake the burning coals together. She struck at him and missed. He dodged past her and she flung the bar at him and again missed him. The iron struck the green box behind the furnace. There was a sound of smashing glass. He did not notice this, intent only upon the girl, and Mirabel closed her eyes and heard only the blow as he struck her. When she looked again, Joan was lying on the bed and he was tying one of her hands to the bed rail with the strap which he had taken from his waist. Then Mirabel saw a sight that released her pent speech. He heard her scream and grinned round at her, saw where she was looking and looked too. Something was coming from the broken green box. A black spade-shaped head with bright hard eyes that seemed to survey the scene in a malignant stare. And then, inch by inch, a thick shining thing like a rubber rope wiggled slowly to the floor, coiled upon itself and raised its flat head. Oh, God, look! He turned about at the sight, that immovable grin of his upon his face and said something in a guttural tongue. The snake was motionless, its baleful gaze first upon the sinking girl, then upon the man. Gerther's surprise was tragic. It was as though he had been confronted with some apparition from another world. And then his hand went to his hip pocket. There was a flash of light and a deafening explosion that stunned her. The pistol dropped from his hand and fell with a clatter to the floor, and she saw his arm was stiffly extended and protruding from the cuff of his coat a black tail that wound round and round his wrist. 
It had struck up his sleeve. The cloth about his biceps was bumping up and down erratically. He stood straightly erect, grinning, the arm still outflung, his astonished eyes upon the coil about his wrist. And then, slowly, his other hand came round, gripped the tail, and pulled it savagely forth. The snake turned with an angry hiss and tried to bite back at him, but raising his hand, he brought the head crashing down against the furnace. There was a convulsive wriggle as the reptile fell among the ashes. "'Gott in Himmel!' whispered Gerther, and his free hand went up to his arm and felt gingerly. "'He is dead, gracious lady. Perhaps there is another?' He went, swaying as he walked to the green box, and put in his hand without hesitation. There was another, a bigger snake, roused from its sleep and angry. He bit twice at the man's wrist, but Gerther laughed, a gurgling laugh of pure enjoyment. For already he was a dead man, that he knew, and it had come to him at the moment and second of his dissolution, when the dread gates of judgment were already ajar, that he should go to his maker with this clean space and the smudge of his life. Go, little one, he said, grinning into the spade face. You have no more poison. That is finished. He put the writhing head under his heel, and Mirabelle shut her eyes and put her hands to her ears. When she looked again, the man was standing by the door, clinging to the post and slipping with every frantic effort to keep himself erect. He grinned at her again, this man of murder, who had made his last kill. Pardon, gracious lady, he said thickly, and went down on his knees, his head against the door, his body swaying slowly from side to side and finally tumbled over. She heard Oberjohn's harsh voice from the floor above. He was calling Gerther, and presently he appeared in the doorway, and there was a pistol in his hand. So, he said, looking down at the dying man. And then he saw the snake, and his face wrinkled. He looked from Mirabelle to the girl on the bed, went over and examined her, but did not attempt to release the strap. It was Mirabelle who did that, Mirabelle who sponged the bruised face and loosened the dress. So doing, she felt a hand on her shoulder. Come, said Aubergine. I am staying here with Joan until... You come at once, or I will give you to my pretty little friends. He pointed to the two snakes on the floor, who still moved spasmodically. She had to step past Gerther, but that seemed easier than passing those wriggling, shining black ropes. And her hand in his, she stumbled up the dark steps and eventually into the clean, sweet air of the night. He was dressed for a journey. She had noticed that when he appeared. A heavy cloth cap was on his curious-shaped head, and he looked less repulsive with so much of his forehead hidden. Though the night was warm, he wore an overcoat. They were passing between the wall and the factory when he stopped and put his hand before her mouth. He had heard voices, low voices, on the other side of the wall, and presently the scrape of something. Without removing his hand from her face, he half-dragged, half-pushed her, until they were clear of the factory. She thought they were going back to the house, which was in darkness, but instead he led her straight along the wall, and presently she saw the bulk of the barge. Stay, and do not speak, he said, and began to turn a rusty wheel. With a squeak and a groan, the water gates opened inwards. What did he intend doing? There was no sign of a boat, only this old dilapidated barge. She was presently to know. Come, he said again. She was on the deck of the barge, moving forward to its bow, which pointed towards the open gate and the canal beyond. She heard him puff and groan as he strained at a rope he had found, 
and then looking down, she saw the front of the barge open, like the two water gates of a lock. Displaying remarkable agility, he lowered himself over the edge. He seemed to be standing on something solid, for again he ordered her to join him. I will not go, she said breathlessly, and turning would have fled, but his hand caught her dress and dragged at her. I will drown you here, woman, he said, and she knew that the threat would have a sequel. Tremblingly she lowered herself over the edge until her foot touched something hard and yet yielding. He was pushing at the barge with all his might, and the platform beneath her grew in space. First the sharp nose and then covered half-deck of the fastest motor-boat that Mr. Aubergeon's money could buy or the ingenuity of builders could devise. The old barge was a boathouse, and this means of escape had always been to his hand. It was for this reason that he lived in a seemingly inaccessible spot. The men who had been on the canal bank were gone. The propellers revolving slowly, the boat stole down the dark waters, after a short time slipped under a bridge over which streetcars were passing, and headed for Deptford in the river. Dr. Aubergeon took off his overcoat and laid it tenderly inside the shelter of the open cabin, tenderly because every pocket was packed tight with money. To Mirabelle Lester, crouching in the darkness of that sheltered space, the time that passed had no dimension. Once an authoritative voice hailed them from the bank. It was a policeman. She saw him after the boat had passed. A gas lamp showed the glitter of his metal buttons, but soon he was far behind. Deptford was near when they reached a barrier which neither ingenuity nor money could pass. A ragged nightbird peered down curiously at the motorboat. "'You can't get through here, Governor,' he said simply. "'The lock doesn't open until high tide.' "'When is this high tide?' asked Aubergeon breathlessly. Six o'clock tomorrow morning,' said the voice. For a long time he saw, stricken to inactivity by the news, and then he sent his engines into reverse and began circling round. There is one refuge for us, young miss, he said. Soon we shall see it. Now I will tell you something. I desire so much to live. Do you also? She did not answer. If you cry out, if you will make noises, I will kill you. That is all, he said. And the very simplicity of his words, the lack of all emphasis behind the deadly earnestness, told her that he would keep his word. End of chapter 31「The Search "'Where man-traps,' said Gonzales. The white beam of his lamp had detected the ugly thing. He struck at it with his stick, and with a vicious snap it closed. "'Here's one that's been strung,' he said, and examined the teeth. And what's more, it has made a catch. There's blood here.' Manfred and Digby were searching the ground cautiously. Then Manfred heard the quick intake of his breath, and he stooped again, picked up a strip of braided cloth. A man's, he said, and his relief betrayed his fear. Somebody in evening dress and quite recent. He looked at his finger. The blood is still wet. Digby showed him the ventilator grating through which he had smelt the incense, and when Leon stooped, the faint aroma still remained. We will try the factory first. If that draws blank, we'll ask Dr. Aubergeon's guidance, and if it is not willingly given, I shall persuade him. And in the reflected light of the lamp, George Manfred saw the hard Leon he knew of old. This time I shall not promise, 
my threat will be infinitely milder than my performance. They came to the dark entry of the factory. Manfred splashed his light inside. You'll have to walk warily here, he said. Progress was slow, for they did not know that a definite path existed between the jagged ends of broken iron and debris. Once or twice Leon stopped to stamp on the floor and gave back a hollow sound. The search was long and painfully slow. A quarter of an hour passed before Leon's lamp focused the upturned flagstone and the yawning entrance of the vault. He was the first to descend, and as he reached the floor he saw, silhouetted in the light that flowed from the inner room, a man, as he thought, crouching in the doorway and covered him. "'Put up your hands,' he said. The figure made no response, and Manfred ran to the shape. The face was in the shadow, but he brought his own lamp down and recognized the set grin of the dead man. Gerther. So thus he had died, in a last effort to climb out for help. The snake, said Manfred briefly. There are no marks on his face, so far as I can see. Do you notice his wrist, George? Then, looking past the figure, Gonzales saw the girl lying on the bed and recognized Joan before he saw her face. Halfway across the room he slipped on something. Instinctively he knew it was the snake and leapt around his pistol balanced. Merciful heaven, look at this! He stared from the one reptile to the other. Dead, he said. That explains Gerther. Quickly he unstrapped Joan's wrist and lifted up her head, listening, his ear pressed to the faintly fluttering heart. The basin and the sponge told its own story. Where was Mirabelle? There was another room, and a row of big cupboards, but the girl was in no place that he searched. She's gone, of course, said Manfred quietly. Otherwise the trap would not have been open. We'd better get this poor girl out of the way and search the grounds. Digby, go to... He stopped. If Aubergine were in the house, they must not take the risk of alarming him. But the girl's needs were urgent. Manfred picked her up and carried her out into the open and with Leon guiding them, they came after a trek which almost ended in a broken neck for Leon, to within a few yards of the house. I presume, said Gonzales, that the hole into which I nearly dived was dug for a purpose, and I shouldn't be surprised to learn it was intended that the late Mr. Gerther should find a permanent home there. Shall I take her? No, no, said Manfred. Go on into the lane. Quackart should be there with the car by now. Puckart knows more about growing onions and driving motor cars. The drive was mechanical. The man's heart and mind were on Mirabel Lester. They had to make a circuit of the stiff copper wire fence which surrounded the house, and eventually reached Hangman's Lane just as the headlamps of the spans came into view. I will take her to the hospital and get in touch with the police, said Manford. I suppose there isn't a nearby telephone? I shall probably telephone from the house, said Leon gravely. From where he stood he could not tell whether the door was open or closed. There was no transom above the door, so that it was impossible to tell whether there were lights in the passage or not. The house was in complete darkness. He was so depressed that he did not even give instructions to Poicard, who was frankly embarrassed by the duty which had been imposed upon him, and gladly surrendered the wheel to George. They lifted the girl into the tonneau, and backing into the gate went cautiously up the lane. Leon did not wait to see their departure, but returned to the front of the house. The place was in darkness. He opened the wire gate and went silently up the steps. 
He had not reached the top before he saw that the door was wide open. Was it a trap? His lamp showed him the switch. He turned on the light and closed the door behind him and, bending his head, listened. The first door on the right was Auberjean's room. The door was ajar, but the lamps were burning inside. He pushed it open with the toe of his boot, but the room was empty. The next two doors he tried on that floor were locked. He went carefully down to the kitchens and searched them both. They were tenantless. He knew there was a servant or two on the premises, but one thing he did not know, and this he discovered in the course of his tour, was that Auberjean had no bedroom. One of the two rooms above had evidently been occupied by the servants. The door was open, the room was empty, and in some confusion a coarse nightdress had been hastily discarded and left on the tumbled bedclothes. Auberjean had sent his servants away in a hurry. Why? There was a half-smoked cigarette on the edge of a deal washstand. The ash lay on the floor. In a bureau every drawer was open and empty except one, a half-drawer filled with odd scraps of cloth. Probably the cook or the maid smoked. He found the packet of cigarettes under one pillow to confirm this view, and guessed that they had gone to bed leisurely with no idea that they would be turned into the night. He learned later that Auberjean had bundled off his servants at ten minutes' notice, paying them six months' salary as some sell for the indignity. Pfeiffer's room was locked, but now, satisfied that the house was empty, he broke the flimsy catch, made a search but found nothing. Gerther's apartment was an indescribable disorder. He had evidently changed in a hurry. His powder puffs and beards, crepe hair and spirit bottles littered the dressing table. He remembered, with a pang of contrition, that he had promised to telephone the police, but when he tried to get the exchange he found the line was dead, a strange circumstance, till he discovered that late that evening Meadows had decided to cut the house from all telephonic communication and had given orders accordingly. It was a queerly built house. He had never realized its remarkable character until he had examined it at these close quarters. The walls were of immense thickness. That fact was brought home to him when he had opened the window of the maid's room to see if Digby was in sight. The stairs were of concrete. The shutters which covered the windows of Auberjean's study were steel-faced. He decided, pending the arrival of the police, to make an examination of the two locked rooms. The first of these he had no difficulty in opening. It was a large room on the actual ground level, and was reached by going down six steps. A rough bench ran round three sides of this bare apartment, except where its continuity broke to allow entrance to a further room. The door was of steel and was fastened. The room was dusty, but not untidy. Everything was in order. The various apparatus was separated by a clear space. In one corner he saw a gas engine and dynamo covered with dust. There was nothing to be gained here. The machine which interested him most was one he knew all about, only he had not guessed the graphite molds. The contents of a small blue bottle, tightly corked, and seemingly filled with discolored swabs of cotton wool, however, revived his interest. With a glance round the laboratory, he went out and tried the second of the locked doors. This room, however, was well protected, both in the matter of stoutness of door and complication of locks. Leon tried all his keys, and then used his final argument. This he carried in a small leather pouch in his hip pocket, three steel pieces that screwed together and ended in a bright claw. Hammering the end of the jemmy with his fist, he forced the claw between door and lintel, 
and in less than a minute the lock had broken, and he was in the presence of the strangest company that had ever been housed. Four electric radiators were burning, the room was hot and heavy, and the taint of it caught his throat, as it had caught the throat of the Danish servant. He put on all the lights, and there were many, and then began his tour. There were two lines of shelves wide apart, and each supporting a number of boxes, some of which were wrapped in bays, some of which, however, were open to view. All had glass fronts, all had steel tops with tiny air holes, and in each there coiled in its bed of wool or straw, according to its requirements, one or two snakes. There were cobras, puff adders, two rattlesnakes, seemingly dead, but as he guessed asleep, there was a South American fair to lance, that most unpleasant representative of his species, there were little coral snakes, and in one long box a whole nest of queer little things that looked like tiny yellow lobsters, but which he knew as scorpions. He was lifting a bay's cover when, "'Don't move, my friend. I think I can promise you more intimate knowledge of our little family.' Leon turned slowly, his hands extended. Death was behind him, remorseless, unhesitating. To drop his hand to his pocket would have been the end for him. He had that peculiar instinct which senses sincerity, and when Dr. Aubergine gave him his instructions he had no doubt whatever that his threat was backed by the will to execute. Aubergine stood there, a little behind him, white-faced, open-eyed with fear, Mirabel Lester. Digby, where was he? He had left him in the grounds. The doctor was examining the broken door and grunted his annoyance. I fear my plan will not be good, he said, which was to lock you in this room and break all those glasses, so that you might become better acquainted with the quiet people. That is not to be. Instead, march. What did he intend? Leon strolled out nonchalantly, but Aubergine kept his distance, his eyes glued upon those sensitive hands that could move so quickly and jerk and fire a gun in one motion. Stop! Leon halted facing the open front door and the steps. You will remember my sainted brother, Signor Gonzales, and of the great loss which the world suffered when he was so vilely murdered. Leon stood without a quiver. Presently the man would shoot. At any second a bullet might come crashing on his fatal errand. This was a queer way to finish so full a life. He knew it was coming, had only one regret that this shaken girl should be called upon to witness such a brutal thing. He wanted to say good-bye to her, but was afraid of frightening her. "'You remember that so sainted brother?' Aubergine's voice was raucous with fury. Ahead of him the light fell upon a face. "'Digby, stay where you are!' shouted Leon. The sound of the explosion made him jump. He saw the brickwork above the doorway splinter, heard a little scuffle, and turned, gun in hand. Aubergine had pulled the girl in front of him so that she afforded a complete cover. Under her arm he held his pistol. "'Run!' she screamed. He hesitated a second. Again the pistol exploded and a bullet ricocheted from the door. Leon could not fire. Aubergine so crouched that nothing but a trick shot could miss the girl and hid him. And then, as the doctor shook free the hand that gripped his wrist, he leapt down the steps and into the darkness. Another second and the door slammed. He heard the thrust of the bolts and a clang as the great iron bar fell into its place. Somehow he had a feeling as of a citadel door being closed against him. Dr. Aubergine had returned unobserved, though the night was clear. 
passing through the open water gate he had tied up to the little quay and landed his unwilling passenger digby according to instructions had been making a careful circuit of the property and at the moment was as far away from the barge as it was humanly possible to be unchallenged the doctor had worked his way back to the house the light in the hollow warned him that somebody was there how many he could not guess take off your shoes he growled in mirabelle's ear and she obeyed whatever happened he must not lose touch of her or give her an opportunity of escape still grasping her arm with one hand and his long mauser pistol in the other he went softly up the steps got into the hall and listened locating the intruder instantly it all happened so quickly that mirabel could remember nothing except the desperate lunge she made to knock up the pistol that had covered the spine of leon gonzalez she stood dumbly by watching this horrible old man fasten the heavy door and obediently preceded him from room to room she saw the long cases in the hot room and shrank back and then began a complete tour of the house there were still shutters to be fastened peepholes to be opened up he screwed up the shutters of the servants room and then with a hammer broke the thumb piece short you will stay here he said i do not know what they will do perhaps they will shoot i also am a shooter not satisfied with the lock that fastened her door he went into his workshop found a staple hook and padlock and spent the greater part of an hour fixing this additional security at last he had finished and could put the situation in front of four very interested men he unlocked the door of the concrete annex and called the crestfallen gunman forth and in a very few words explained the situation and their danger for every one of you the english police hold warrants he said i do not bluff i know this afternoon i was visited by the police i tell you i do not bluff you me they cannot touch because they know nothing can prove nothing at most i shall go to prison for a few years but with you it is different are they waiting outside asked one suspiciously because if they are we'd better move quick you do not move quick or slow said Aubergine. to go out from here means certain imprisonment for you all to stay if you follow my plan means that every one of you may go free and with money what's the idea asked cuccini are you going to fight them sure i am going to fight them nodded Aubergine. that is my scheme i have the young miss upstairs they will not wish to do her any harm i intend to defend this house do you mean you're going to hold it asked one of the staggered men i will hold it until they are tired and make terms cuccini was biting his nails nervously might as well be hung for a sheep as a lamb boss he growled i've got an idea you've roped us into this you may rope yourself out of it snapped Aubergine. there is the door go if you wish there are police there make terms with them a few days ago you were in trouble my friend who saved you the doctor Aubergine. there is life imprisonment for every one of you and i can hold this house myself stay with me and i will give you a fortune greater than any you have dreamt about and more than this at the end you shall be free where's gerther he has been killed by accident Aubergine's face was working furiously by accident he died he said and told the truth unconvincingly there is nothing now to do but to make a decision cuccini and his friends consulted in a whisper what do we get for our share he asked and Aubergine mentioned a sum which staggered them i speak the truth he said 
In two days I shall have a gold mine worth millions. The habit of frankness was on him, and he told them the story of the Golden Hill without reservations. His agents at Lisbon had already obtained from the ministry an option upon the land and its mineral rights. As the clock struck twelve on June 14, the goldfield of Viscara automatically passed into his possession. On one side you have certain imprisonment, on the other you have great monies and happiness. How long will we have to stay here, Ascuccini? I have food for a month, even milk. They will not cut the water because of the girl. For the same reason they will not blow in the door. Again they had a hasty consultation and made their decision. All right, boss, we'll stay. But we want that chair out put into writing. To my study, said Aubergine promptly. March. He was halfway through writing the document when there came a thunderous knock on the door and he got up, signaling for silence. Tiptoeing along the passage, he came to the door. Yes, who was that, he asked. Open, in the name of the law, said a voice, and he recognized Meadows. I have a warrant for your arrest, and if necessary the door will be broken in. So, said Aubergine, dropped the muzzle of his pistol until it rested on the edge of the little letter slid in fire twice. End of chapter 32《Chapter Thirty Three of the Three Just Men by Edgar Wallace. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. The Siege. But Meadows had already warned to keep clear of the letter box, and the bullets eventually reached one of the railway viaducts to the embarrassment of a road ganger who happened to be almost in the line of fire. Meadows slipped down the steps to cover. Inside the wire fence, a dozen policemen were waiting. Sergeant, go back to the station in the police car and bring arms, he said. This is going to be a long job. Gonzales had made a very careful reconnaissance of the ground, and from the first had recognized the difficulties which lay ahead of the attacking party. The wall rose sheer without any break. Such windows as were within reach were heavily shuttered, and even the higher windows he guessed had been covered. The important problem in his mind was to locate the room in which the girl was imprisoned, and making a mental review of the house, he decided that she was either in the servant's apartment or in that which had held Gerther. By the light of the lantern, he made a rapid sketch plan of the floors he had visited. Meadows had gone away to telephone to police headquarters. He had decided to re-establish telephone connection with the doctor, and when this was done, he called the house and Aubergine's voice answered him. The colloquy was short and unsatisfactory. The terms which the doctor offered was such as no self-respecting government could accept. Immunity for himself and his companions. He insisted so strongly upon this latter offer that Meadows guessed, accurately, that the gang were standing around the instrument. I don't want your men at all. So far as I am concerned, they can go free, said Meadows. Ask one of them to speak on the phone. Oh, indeed no, said Aubergine. It is ridiculous to ask me that. He hung up at this point and explained to the listening men that the police had offered him freedom if he would surrender the gang. As I already told you, he said in conclusion, that is not the way of Dr. Aubergine. I will gain nothing at the expense of my friends. A little later, when Cuccini crept into the room to call police headquarters and confirm this story of the doctor, he found that not only had the wire been cut, but a yard of the flex had been removed. Dr. Aubergine was taking no risks. 
The night passed without any further incident. Police reserves were pouring into the neighborhood, the grounds had been isolated, and even the traffic of barges up and down the canal prohibited. The late editions of the morning newspapers had a heavily headlined paragraph about the siege of a house in the New Cross area, and when the first reporters arrived a fringe of sightseers had already gathered at every police barrier. Later, special editions with fuller details began to roll out of Fleet Street. The crowd grew in density, and a high official from Scotland Yard, arriving soon after nine, ordered a further area to be cleared, and with some difficulty the solid wedge of humanity at the end of Hangman's Lane was slowly pushed back until the house was invisible to them. Even here a passageway was kept for police cars, and only holders of passes were allowed to come within the prohibited area. The three men, with the police chief, had taken up their headquarters in the factory, from which the body of Gerther had been removed in the night. The deputy commissioner, who came on the spot at nine, and examined the dead snakes, was something of a herpetologist, and pronounced them to be veritable fer de lance, a view from which Poicart differed. They are a species of African tree snakes that the natives call mamba. There are two, a black and a green. Both of these are the black type. The Zumamba, said the official, remembering the sensational disappearance of a deadly snake which had preceded the first of the snake mysteries. You will probably find the bones of the Zumamba in some mole run in Regent's Park. He must have been frozen to death the night of his escape, said Poichardt. It was absolutely impossible that at that temperature he could live. I have made a very careful inspection of the land, and adjacent to the zoological gardens is a big stretch of earth which is honeycombed by moles. No, this was imported, and the rest of his menagerie was imported. The police chief shook his head. Still, I'm not convinced that a snake could have been responsible for these deaths, he said, and went over the ground so often covered. The three listened in polite silence and offered no suggestion. The morning brought news of Washington's arrival in Lisbon. He had left the train at Irun, Leon's agent in Madrid having secured a relay of aeroplanes, and the journey from Irun to Lisbon had been completed in a few hours. He was now on his way back. If he makes the connections, he will be here tonight, he told Manfred. I rather think he will be a very useful recruit to our forces. You are thinking of the snakes in the house? Leon nodded. I know Aubergine, he said simply, and George Manfred thought of the girl and knew the unspoken fears of his friend were justified. The night had not been an idle one for Aubergine and his companions. With the first light of dawn, they had mounted to the roof, and under his direction, the gunmen had dismantled the four sheds which stood at each corner of the parapet. Unused to the handling of such heavy metal, the remnants of the old guard gazed in awe upon the tarnished jackets of the Maxim guns that were revealed. Aubergine understood the mechanism of the machine so thoroughly that in half an hour he had taught his crew the method of handling and sighting. In the larger shed was a collapsible tripod which was put together, and on this he mounted a small but powerful searchlight and connected it up with one of the plugs in the roof. He pointed to them the three approaches to the house, the open railway arches and the long lane, at the end of which the crowd at that moment was beginning to gather. From only these places can the ground be approached, he said, and my little quick firers cover them. Just before eleven there came down Hangman's Lane, drawn by a motor tractor, a long tree trunk, 
suspended about the middle by chains, and Aubergeon, examining it carefully through his field-glasses, realized that no door in the world could stand against the attack of that battering-ram. He took up one of the dozen rifles that lay on the floor, sighted it carefully, resting his elbow on the parapet, and fired. He saw the helmet of a policeman shoot away from the head of the astonished man and fired again. This time he was more successful, for a policeman who was directing the course of the tractor crumpled up and fell in a heap. A shrill whistle blew. The policeman ran to cover, leaving the machine unattended. Again he fired, this time at the driver of the tractor. He saw the man scramble down from his seat and run for the shelter of the fence. A quarter of an hour passed without any sign of activity on the part of his enemies, and then eight men, armed with rifles, came racing across the ground towards the wire barrier. Aubergeon dropped his rifle and, taking a grip of the first machine-gun in his hand, sighted it quickly. The staccato patter of the maxim awakened the echoes. One man dropped, the line wavered. Again the shrill whistle, and they broke for cover, dragging their wounded companion with them. I was afraid of that, said Leon, biting his knuckles, sure evidence of his perturbation. He had put a ladder against the wall of the factory, and now he climbed up onto the shaky roof and focused his glasses. There's another maxim on this side, he shouted down. And then, as he saw a man's head moving above the parapet, he jerked up his pistol and fired. He saw the stone splinters fly up and knew that it was not bad practice at four hundred yards. The shot had a double effect. It made the defenders cautious and aroused in them the necessary quantity of resentment. He was hardly down before there was a splutter from the roof, and the whine and snap of machine-gun bullets, one slate tile shivered and its splinters leapt high in the air and dropped beside his hand. The presence of the girl was the only complication. Without her, the end of Aubergeon and his companions was inevitable. Nobody realized this better than the doctor, eating a huge ham sandwich in the shelter of the parapet, an unusual luxury, for he ate few solids. This will be very shocking for our friends of Curzon Street, he said. At this moment they bite their hands in despair. He was nearly right here. He peeped over the parapet. There was no policeman in sight. Even the trains that had roared at regular intervals along the viaduct had ceased to run, traffic being diverted to another route. At half-past twelve, looking through a peephole, he saw a long yellow line of men coming down Hangman's Lane, keeping to the shelter of the fence. Soldiers, he said, and for a second his voice quavered. Soldiers they were. Presently they began to trickle into the grounds, one by one, each man finding his own cover. Simultaneously there came a flash and a crack from the nearest viaduct. A bullet smacked against the parapet and the sound of the ricochet was like the hum of a bee. Another menace had appeared simultaneously, a great lumbering awkward vehicle that kept to the middle of the lane and turned its ungainly nose into the field. It was a tank, and Aubergeon knew that only the girl's safety stood between him and the dangling noose. He went down to see her, unlocked the door, and found her, to his amazement, fast asleep. She got up at the sound of the key in the lock and accepted the bread and meat and water he brought her without a word. What time is it? Aubergeon stared at her. That you should ask the time at such a moment, he said. The room was in darkness but for the light he had switched on. It is noon, 
and our friends have brought soldiers. Ugh! How important a woman you were, that the whole army should come out for you. Sarcasm was wasted on Mirabel. What is going to happen now? I do not know, he shrugged his shoulders. They have brought a diabolical instrument into the grounds. They may use it to give them cover so that the door may be blown in. At that moment I place you in the snake room. This I shall tell our friends very quickly. She gazed at him in horror. You wouldn't do anything so wicked, Mr. Aubergine. Up and down went the skin of his forehead. That I shall tell them and that I shall do, he said, and locked her in with this comfortless assurance. He went into his study and, fastening the door, took two strands of wire from his pocket and repaired the broken telephone connections. I wish to speak to Meadows, he said to the man who answered him, a police officer who had been stationed at the exchange to answer any call from this connection. I will put you through to him, was the reply. For a moment the doctor was surprised that Meadows was not at the exchange. He did not know then that a field telephone line had been organized, and that the factory headquarters of the directing staff was in communication with the world. It was not Meadows, but another man who answered him, and by his tone of authority, Aubergine guessed that some higher police official than Meadows was on the spot. "'I am the Dr. Aubergine,' he barked. "'You have brought a tank machine to attack me. If this approaches beyond the wire fence, I shall place the woman Lester in the home of the snakes, and there I will bind her and release my little friends to avenge me.' "'Look here,' began the officer, but Aubergine hung up on him. He went out and locked the door, putting the key in his pocket. His one doubt was of the loyalty of his companions. But here, strangely enough, he underrated their faith in him. The very mildness of the attack, the seeming reluctance of the soldiers to fire, had raised their hopes and spirits. And when, a quarter of an hour later, they saw the tank turn about and go out into Hangman's Lane, they were almost jubilant. "'You're sure that he will carry out his threat?' asked the police chief. "'Certain,' said Leon emphatically. There is nothing on earth that will stop Aubergine. He will force the house to find the man who was died by his own hand, and he shuddered at the thought. The only thing to be done is to wait for the night. If Washington arrives on time, I think we can save Miss Lester. From the roof, Dr. Aubergine saw that the soldiers were digging a line of trenches, and sent a spatter of machine-gun bullets in their direction. They stopped their work for a moment to look round, and then went on digging, as though nothing had happened. The supply of ammunition was not inexhaustible, and he determined to reserve any further fire until the attack grew more active. Looking over the top of the parapet to examine the ground immediately below, something hot and vicious snicked his ear. He saw the brickwork of the chimney behind him crumble and scatter, and putting up his hand, felt blood. "'You'd better keep down, Aubergine," said Cuccini, crouching in the shelter of the parapet. "'They nearly got you, then. They're firing from that railway embankment.' Have you had a talk with the boss of these birds? They are weakening, said Aubergine promptly. Always they are asking me if I will surrender the men. Always I reply, never will I do anything so dishonorable. Cuccini grunted, having his own views of the doctor's altruism. Late in the afternoon, a flight of aeroplanes appeared in the west, five machines flying a V formation. None of the men on the roof recognized the danger, standing rather in the attitude and spirit of sightseers. The machines were flying low, 
with the naked eye, Cuccini could read their numbers long before they came within a hundred yards of the house. Suddenly the roof began to spout little fountains of asphalt. Aubergine screamed a warning and darted to the stairway, and three men followed him out. Cuccini lay spread-eagled where he fell, two machine-gun bullets through his head. The fighting machines mounted, turned, and came back. Standing on the floor below, Aubergine heard the roar of their engines as they passed, and went in cautiously to the roof to discover that the guns of flying machines fire equally well from the tail. He was nearer to death than he had ever been. One bullet hit the tip of his finger and sliced it off neatly. With a scream of pain he half fell, half staggered to safety, spluttering strange oaths in German. The aeroplanes did not return. He waited until their noise had died away before he again ventured to the roof to find the sky clear. Cuccini was dead, and it was characteristic of his three friends that they should make a thorough search of his pockets before they heaved the body over the parapet. Aubergine left the three on the roof, with strict instructions that they were to dive to cover at the first glint of white wings, and went down into his study. The death of Cuccini was in some ways a blessing. The man was full of suspicion, his heart was not in the fight, and the aeroplane gunner had merely anticipated the doctor's own plan. Cuccini was a Latin, who spoke English well and wrote it badly. He had a characteristic hand, which it amused Aubergine to copy, for the doctor was skillful with his pen. All through the next three hours he wrote, breaking off his labors in intervals to visit the guard on the roof. At last he had finished, and Cuccini's sprawling signature was affixed to the bottom of the third page. Orbazan called down one of the men. This is the statement of Cuccini which he left. Will you put your name to his signature? What is it? asked the man surlily. It is a letter which the good Cuccini made. What generosity! In this he says that he alone was to blame for bringing you here and nobody else. Also that he kept you by threats. And you? asked the man. Also me, said Aubergine, unabashed. What does it matter? Cuccini is dead. May he not in his death save us all? Come, come, my good friend. You are a fool if you do not sign. After that, send down our friends that they may also sign. A reluctant signature was fixed, and the other men came one by one, and one by one signed their names, content to stand by the graft which the doctor indicated, exculpating themselves from all responsibility in the defense. Dusk fell and night came blackly, with clouds sweeping up from the west and a chill rain falling. Gonzales, moodily apart from his companions, watched the dark bulk of the house fade into the background with an ever-increasing misery. What these men did after did not matter to them. A policeman had been killed, and they stood equally guilty of murder in the eyes of the law. They could now pile horror upon horror for the worst that happened. His only hope was that they did not know the inevitability of their punishment. No orders for attack had been given. The soldiers were standing by, and even the attack by the aeroplanes had been due to a misapprehension of orders. He had seen Cuccini's body fall, and as soon as night came he determined to approach the house to discover if there was any other way in than the entrance by the front door. The aeroplanes had done something more than sweep the roof with their guns. Late in the evening there arrived by special messenger telescopic photographs of the building, which the military commander and the police chief examined with interest. 
Leon was watching the house when he saw a white beam of light shoot out and begin a circular sweep of the grounds. He expected this. The meaning of the connections in the wall was clear. He knew, too, how long that experiment would last. A quarter of an hour after the searchlight began its erratic survey of the ground, the lamp went out, the police having disconnected the current. But it was only for a little while, and in less than an hour the light was showing again. He has power in the house, a dynamo and a gas engine, explained Gonzales. Quackhart had been to town and had returned with a long and heavy steel cylinder, which Leon and Manfred carried between them into the open and left. They were sniped vigorously from the roof, and although the firing was rather wild, the officer in charge of the operations forbade any further movement in daylight. At midnight came the blessed Washington. They had been waiting for him with eagerness, for he of all men knew something that they did not know. Briefly, Leon described the snake room and its contents. He was not absolutely certain of some of the species, but his description was near enough to give the snake expert an idea of the species. Yes, sir, they're all deadly, said Washington, shaking his head. I guess there isn't a thing there, bar the scorps, who wouldn't put a grown man to sleep in five minutes, ten minutes at the most. They showed him the remains of the dead snake, and he instantly recognized the kind, as the zoological expert had done in the afternoon. That's Mamba. He's nearly the deadliest of all. You didn't see a fellow with a long, bill-shaped head? You did? Well, that's fair to Lance, and he's almost as bad. The little red fellows were corals. Leon questioned him more closely. No, sir, they don't leap. That's not their way. A tree snake will hang on to something overhead and get you as you pass. And they'll swing from the floor, but their heads got to touch the floor first. The poor little fellow that killed Gerther was scared. And when they're scared, they'll lash up at you. I've known a man to be bitten in the throat by a snake that whipped up from the ground. But usually they're satisfied to get your leg. Leon told him his plan. I'll come along with you, said Washington, without hesitation. But this offer neither of the three would accept. Leon had only wanted the expert's opinion. There were scores of scientists in London, curators of museums and keepers of snakes, who could have told him everything there was to be known about the habits of the reptile in captivity. He needed somebody who had met the snake in his native environment. An hour before daylight showed in the sky, there was a council of war. Leon put his scheme before the authorities, and the plan was approved. He did not wait for the necessary orders to be given, but with Poichard and Manfred, went to the place where they had left the cylinder, and lifting it, made their slow way towards the house. In addition, Leon carried a light ladder and a small bag full of tools. The rays of the searchlight were moving erratically, and for a long time did not come in their direction. Suddenly they found themselves in a circle of dazzling light and fell flat on their faces. A machine gun spat viciously. The earth was churned up under the torrent of bullets, but none of the men was hit, and more important, the cylinder was not touched. Then suddenly, from every part of the ground, firing started. The target was the searchlight, and the shooting had not gone on for more than a minute before the light went out, so jerkily that it was obvious that one bullet at least had got home. Now, said Manfred, and lifting up the cylinder they ran. Pockart put his hand on the fence wire and was hurled back. The top wire was alive. 
but evidently the doctor's dynamo was not capable of generating a current that would be fatal. Leon produced an insulated wire cutter and snipped off a six-foot length, earthing the broken ends of the wire. They were now under the shadow of the wall of the house, and out of danger so far as bullets were concerned. Leon planted his ladder against the window under which they stopped, and in a second had broken the glass, turned the catch, and sent up the sash. From his bag he produced a small diamond drill and began to work through the thick steel plate. It was a terribly arduous job, and after ten minutes' labor he handed over the work to Manfred, who mounted in his place. Whatever damage had been done to the searchlight had now been repaired, and its beam had concentrated on the spot where they had been last seen. This time no fusillade greeted its appearance, and Aubergine was surprised and troubled by the inaction. The light came into the sky, the walls grew grey and all objects sharply visible, when he saw the tank move out of the lane where it had been standing all the previous day, turn into the field, and slowly move towards the house. He set his teeth in a grin, and, darting down the stairs, flung himself against the door of the girl's room, and his agitation was such that for a time he could not find the keyhole of the two locks that held the door secure. It opened with a crash, and he almost fell into the room in his eagerness. Mirabel Lester was standing by the bed, her face white as death. Yet her voice was steady, almost unconcerned, when she asked, "'What do you want?' "'You!' he hissed. "'You, my fine little lady, you were for the snakes!' He flung himself upon her, though she offered no resistance, threw her back on the bed and snapped a pair of rusty handcuffs on her wrists. Pulling her to her feet, he dragged her from the room and down the stairs. He had some difficulty in opening the door of the snake room, for he had wedged it close. The door was pushed open at last. The radiators were no longer burning. He could not afford the power. But the room was stiflingly hot, and when he turned on the lights and she saw the long line of boxes, her knees gave way under her, and she would have fallen had he not put his arm about her waist. Dragging a heavy chair to the center of the room, he pushed her down into it. "'Here you wait, my friend,' he yelled. "'You shall wait, but not long.' On the wall there were three long straps which were used for fastening the boxes when it was necessary to travel with them. In a second one thong was about her and buckled tight to the back of the chair. The second he put under the seat and fastened across her knees. "'Good-bye, gracious lady!' The rumble of the tank came to him in that room, but he had work to do. There was no time to open the boxes. The glass fronts might easily be broken. He ran along the line, hitting the glass with the barrel of his mauser. The girl, staring in horror, saw a green head come into view through one opening, saw a sinuous shape slide gently to the floor. And then he turned out the lights, the door was slammed, and she was left alone in the room of terror. Oberzon was no sooner in the passage than the first bomb exploded at the door. Splinters of wood flew past him as he turned and raced up the stairs, feeling in his pocket as he went for the precious document which might yet clear him. Boom! He had not locked the door of the snake room. Leon had broken the hasp. Let them go in, if they wished. The front door was not down yet. From the landing above he listened over the balustrade and then a greater explosion than ever shook the house, and after an interval of silence he heard somebody running along the passage and shake at the snake-room door. Too late now. He grinned his joy, went up the last flight to the roof, to find his three men in a state of mutiny, the quelling of which was not left to him. 
The glitter of a bayonet came to the door opening. A khaki figure slipped onto the roof, finger on trigger. Hands up, you, he said in a raucous, cockney voice. Four pairs of hands went upward. Manfred followed the second soldier and caught the doctor by the arm. I want you, my friend, he said, and Aubergeant went obediently down the stairs. They had to pass Gerther's room. The door was open, and Manfred pushed his prisoner inside as Poicard and Leon ran up the stairs. The girl's all right. The gas killed the snakes the moment they touched the floor, and Brother Washington is dealing with the live ones, said Leon rapidly. He shut the door quickly. The doctor was alone for the first time in his life with the three men he hated and feared. Aubergeon, this is the end, said Manfred. The queer grimace that passed for a smile flitted across the puckered face of the doctor. I think not, my friends, he said. Here is a statement by Cuccini. I am but the innocent victim, as you will see. Cuccini has confessed to all and has implicated his friends. I would not resist. Why should I? I am an honest, respectable man and a citizen of a great and friendly country. Behold! He showed the paper. Manfred took it from his hand, but did not read it. Also, whatever happens, your lady loses her beautiful hill of gold. He found joy in this reflection. For tomorrow is the last day... Stand over there, Aubergeon, said Manfred, and pushed him against the wall. You are judged. Though your confession may cheat the law, you will not cheat us. And then the doctor saw something, and he screamed his fear. Leon Gonzalez was fixing a cigarette to the long black holder he had found in Gerther's room. You hold it thus, said Leon, do you not? He dipped the cigarette down and pressed the small spring that was concealed in the black ebonite. The holder is an insulated chamber that holds two small icy splinters. I found the mold in your laboratory here, doctor. They drop into the cigarette, which is a metal one, and then... He lifted it to his lips and blew. None saw the two tiny icicles fly. Only Aubergeon put his hand to his cheek with a strangled scream, glared for a second, and then went down like a heap of rags. Leon met Inspector Meadows on his way up. I'm afraid our friend has gone, he said. He has cheated the hangman of ten pounds. Dead, said Meadows. Suicide? It looks like a snake-bite to me, said Leon carelessly, as he went down to find Mirabel Lester, half laughing, half crying, whilst an earnest Elijah Washington was explaining to her the admirable domestic qualities of snakes. There's five thousand dollars worth dead, he said in despair. But there's enough left to start a circus. End of chapter 33「Chapter 34 of the Three Just Men by Edgar Wallace. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. The Death Tube Later, Manfred explained to an interested police chief. Aubergeon secured the poison by taking a snake and extracting his venom. A simple process. You have but to make him angry, and he will bite on anything. The doctor discovered a way of blending these venoms to bring out the most deadly qualities of them all. It sounds fantastic, and from the scientist's point of view, unlikely. But it is nevertheless the fact. The venom was slightly diluted with water, and enough to kill a dozen people was poured into a tiny mold and frozen. Frozen? said the chief in astonishment. Manfred nodded. There is no doubt about it, he said. Snake venom does not lose its potency by being frozen. 
and this method of molding their darts was a very sane one, from their point of view. It was only necessary for a microscopic portion of the splinter to pierce the flesh. Sufficient instantly melted to cause death, and if the victim rubbed the place where he had been struck, it was more certain that he would rub some of the venom which had melted on his cheek into the wound. Usually they died instantly. The cigarette holders that were carried by Gerther and the other assassin, Pfeiffer, were blowpipes, the cigarette a hollow metal fake. By the time they blew their little ice darts, it was in a half-molten condition and carried sufficient liquid poison to kill, even if the skin was only punctured. And, of course, all that did not enter the skin melted before there could be any examination by the police. That is why you never found darts such as the Bushmen use, slithers of bamboo, thorns from trees. Aubergine had the simplest method of dealing with all opposition. He sent out his snake-men to intercept them, and only once did they fail, when they aimed at Leon and caught that snake-proof man, Elijah Washington. What about Miss Lester's claim to the goldfields of Biscara? Manfred smiled. The renewal has already been applied for and granted. Leon found at Heavy Tree Farm some blank sheets of notepaper signed with the girl's name. He stole one during the aunt's absence and filled up the blank with a formal request for renewal. I have just had a wire to say that the lease is extended. He and Poicard had to walk the best part of the way to New Cross before they could find a taxicab. Leon had gone on with the girl. Poicard was worried about something and did not speak his mind until the providential cab appeared on the scene and they were trundling along the New Cross Road. My dear George, I am a little troubled about Leon, he said at last. It seems almost impossible to believe, but... But what? asked Manfred good-humouredly, and knowing what was coming. You don't believe, said Poicard in a hushed voice as though he were discussing the advent of some world cataclysm. You don't believe that Leon is in love, do you? Manfred considered for a moment. Such things happen, even to just men, he said, and Poicard shook his head sadly. I have never contemplated such an unhappy contingency, he said, and Manfred was laughing to himself all the way back to town. End of chapter 34 End of the Three Just Men by Edgar Wallace Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target, are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill.